0: Hearts through the reading and conviction of your word, that we might look more like Christ and be bolder agents of truth and peace in this world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm 32, page 462 in the Church Bibles. Psalm 32. Page 462. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. One of my favorite questions to ask when meeting someone new is what makes you happy now that is a very simple question i admit but it's also a loaded question because what we love defines who we are so what makes you happy if you say playing sports you're an athlete If you say, spending time with my kids, you're a family man. If you say, spending time with my wife, you're a wise man. If you say, spending time with my husband, you're a liar. And if you say, hunting, fishing, and piddling around the shop, everyone knows you're just Stan Smith in disguise. What we love, what makes us happy, defines who we are. There are many things that make us happy. But what's at the top of that list for you? For King David, the author of Psalm 32, it is the knowledge that his sins are forgiven. Now, that might seem odd or even overly pious to you. But have we not all experienced in our lives the sweet relief that comes from being forgiven by a friend, by a parent, by a spouse? And if that is true of forgiveness within human relationships, how much more of our relationship with God? His forgiveness can make us happy. Forever. But how can we enjoy God's forgiveness on a daily basis? And King David's answer is this. To enjoy God's forgiveness, we must confess our sins. To enjoy God's forgiveness, we must confess our sins. This might seem backward to many of us. We say, isn't confession about morbid introspection? Isn't confession about groveling in our guilt and rubbing salt in our wounds? And the biblical answer is absolutely not. On the contrary, David tells us that confessing our sins makes us happy because it allows us to experience afresh God's forgiveness. And this morning, I would like to provide for us from this psalm three points about forgiveness and about how confession and confessing our sins is vital to our enjoyment of it. So first, in verses 1 and 2, we learn that we are forgiven only by God's grace. That's foundational. David begins this psalm with the word blessed, which means happy, but which also points us to the graciousness of God's character in forgiving us. Forgiveness is a blessing. It is an undeserved gift that God gives to anyone who comes to him and asks for it in repentance and faith. God does not forgive us because of anything we have done. God forgives us because he is gracious. And David describes God's forgiveness in two ways. First we see in verse 1. That God forgives us by removing our sins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, David uses two words to describe our faults, doesn't he? One word is sin, which is a failure to live up to God's moral standard. And the other word is transgression, which is actually a military term that refers to a willful rebellion against authority. Perhaps you've read in the news this past week of the attempted coup in Turkey. Not surprisingly, President Erdogan has condemned that rebellion as treason and has threatened to show his power to his people by sentencing those involved with the death penalty. But our God is gracious to his people. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God forgives our transgression. How does he deal with our sin? He forgives it. He covers it. He puts our faults out of his sight and never brings them up again. There's a second way that God forgives us. David tells us in verse 2 that God forgives us also by not counting our sins against us. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now the word counts or imputes is an accounting term that refers to getting what one deserves. So it might be helpful to think of God for just a moment, not too long, as a moral accountant who keeps record of our sins and holds us accountable for all that we say and do and think. If, at the end of our lives, God were to give us what we deserve, we would be sentenced with an eternal penalty. But David understands, even under the Old Covenant, that when God forgives us, He wipes our records clean. He stamps our tickets with the words, Paid in full. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that God has always forgiven people in this way. It's who God is. Paul points us to Genesis 15, verse 6, where the Scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted right to him as righteousness. God treated David the same way, and God treats us the same way. He does not count our sins against us. When we believe that our forgiveness only comes through the shed blood of Christ, God counts our faith as righteousness and this happens the moment we put our trust in Jesus and so we sing in that hymn to god be the glory the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from jesus a pardon receives for life that's how gracious god is But this faith that God counts as righteousness is not just knowledge. It's also humility. David goes on to tell us in verse 2 that the one who enjoys God's forgiveness is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Right? Now, can God be deceived about our sin? Nada. But we can easily be deceived about whether we've done something wrong. 1 John 1.8, the Apostle John tells us, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's why God urges us to confess our sins to him. We might even call confession a gift (laughs) because it gives us the opportunity to be honest about our sin and experience afresh God's grace and forgiveness. In fact, that's our second point this morning. First, we are forgiven only by God's grace. That's foundational. But second, we experience God's forgiveness through the gift of confession. This is where the psalm gets really interesting. Because David tells his own story and teaches us two lessons about how God deals with our sin. First, in verses three and four, David shows us that God disciplines us when we conceal our sins. God disciplines us when we conceal our sins. So David writes, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God disciplined David when he refused to confess his sin. And the longer David kept silent, the more miserable he became. Many of us have experienced this sort of misery. I remember a time in seminary, everybody's listening now, when I turned in a reading log that stated I had read an entire book when I had not. I had lied. And the harder I tried to ignore what I had done, the more miserable I became. I'm telling you, it's like I had just killed a man. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't move on. This lasted for several days until I finally emailed the professor and told him what I had done, and immediately relief came. Why do you think we are so reluctant to confess our sins? Let me give you four reasons. These will be very quick. First, we're in denial. We refuse to acknowledge that what we've done is wrong. Second, we're afraid. We fear the embarrassment, the shame Or the consequences of openly admitting our fault. Third, and I think most popularly in our circles, we presume on God's kindness. We tell ourselves that confession is unnecessary because God is merciful. And fourth, we're weak. We know that what we are doing is wrong, but we convince ourselves that we are unable to change. But our reluctance to confess our sin is not without consequence. David says that if we refuse to confess our sins, God's hand will be heavy upon us. When I was a teenager, I used to play the game mercy with my father. It's the game where you interlock fingers with an opponent and try to bend one another's wrists back until they cry mercy. To this day, I have never beaten my father. He's like 70. He's listening. You're like 69, but he's 70 if you round up. Never beaten my father, and that is because my father has the hands of a silverback gorilla. His hands are perfect for back massages, but terrifying in any contest or duel. Now, if the hands of my earthly father are terrifying, how much more terrifying are the hands of our heavenly father when he has set himself against us? You know, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the oceans can fit in his palm. Uh, David tells us in Psalm 8 that God set the stars in the sky with his fingertips. And you want to play mercy with the craftsmen of the universe? Our Heavenly Father is willing to discipline us when we conceal our sins. He will bend us and even break us in order to save us from our own self-destruction. But he will always bring relief when we cry out mercy. That's exactly what David did. He shows us in verse 5 that God forgives us when we confess our sins at what david writes i acknowledged my sin to you and i did not cover my iniquity i said i will confess my sins transgressions to the lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin god's discipline had its intended effect and david humbly confessed his sins now what does it mean to confess our sins What we see in this verse that confession consists of two aspects, one nonverbal and the other verbal. The nonverbal aspect of confession is that we must agree with God that we were wrong. David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you. This kind of mental sincerity sets us up for true repentance. If we're going to change our actions, we must first agree with God that we were wrong in the first place. But there's also a verbal aspect of confession. And that is, we must ask God to forgive us. David writes, I said... So he's writing this, but he says in verse 5, I said, I I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. God wants us to put our sorrow into words because words reveal the sincerity of our hearts. And isn't it easy to offer an insincere apology? It's so easy. We say things like, I'm sorry if I offended you. Or, I'm sorry you were offended. Or, I'm sorry I offended you, I was stressed. But this is not repentance. And these are not apologies, they are smokescreens. And while they might deceive others... They can never deceive God. Because God knows our hearts. So I think that wording is important when it comes to confessing our sins. When it comes to confessing our sins to God. Or to one another. The first words of any confession of sin. Should be, I'm sorry that I. Words reveal the temperature of our hearts, our intentions, our sincerity. This is why confession is a gift. It allows us not to be deceived. When we confess our sins to God with sincerity, we can be assured of his total forgiveness. David writes with certainty, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Just by confession. Just by asking for it. No more guilt. No more shame. When God says that you are forgiven, believe him. He cannot lie. Believe you are forgiven and you are. That's what Luther said. So confession is a gift that heightens our enjoyment of God's forgiveness. But it is also a key that unlocks all the benefits of being in covenant relationship with God. And David now describes some of these benefits for us. I want us to see now in verses 6 through 11, our third point, that we should confess our sins without delay because forgiveness brings us into the fullness of of God's blessing. We should confess our sins without delay. Because forgiveness brings us into the fullness. Of God's blessing. Remember. God disciplines us when we conceal our sins. But he forgives us when we confess our sins. And he restores the fellowship and the benefits that were lost. David mentions three. First. First. In verses 6 and 7, we see that God gives us peace. David writes, just read the first part for you. Therefore, as in, here's the application. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time When you may be found. Now, do you notice how David is now addressing others? He's calling upon the whole congregation to confess their sins together as a part of their corporate worship. Now, what does this mean for us? It means, friends, that God wants us to confess our sins together on Sunday mornings. The elders realize this is countercultural and even unpopular in some Protestant churches. But it is biblical. And while we do not need to specifically list our sins to one another in this context, we do need to set aside time every Sunday morning to publicly acknowledge our faults and be assured of God's mercy to us in Christ. And when we do that, God will not only flood us with forgiveness. He will also fill us with peace. So David declares, remainder of verse six, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Verse seven, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Confession brings peace. And peace is what we all need. Our city is broken. Racism runs rampant. Injustice goes unchecked. But God has called us to be his agents of peace. And what better way to be equipped for this powerful role than to be reminded every week Of the peace with God that we have in Christ. Not only does God give us peace. But in verses 8 through 10, we see that he gives us guidance. Uh, David speaks for God now. And he relates to us two ways that God promises to guide us. First in verses 8 and 9. God teaches us to obey him with a willing spirit. This wasn't on your outline because it wouldn't fit. But you can write this down if you like for you note takers. God teaches us to obey him with a willing spirit. God promises in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule. Without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. We can stop there for a moment. Do you know that one of the reasons why God forgives us is so that we will obey him? In John 8, after our Lord Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery, he told her, Go, and from now on, sin no more. There's a confession of sin that we pray together here, which ends... Forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. God's forgiveness empowers us to obey. We don't wait to confess our sins until we have obeyed. No, our confession is because we need help to obey. Just like Andrew said. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a confession and a cry for help. God has promised his guidance to us. There's another way God um, promises to guide us. In verse 10, God surrounds us with his steadfast love. God surrounds us with his steadfast love. I love this. David writes, many are the sorrows of the wicked, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Why is it that the presence of a loved one can fill us with such confidence? So at a soccer game, the son looks at his father at the kickoff. At a recital, the daughter locks eyes with her mother from the piano bench. At the State of the Union, the president finds the eyes of the first lady in the crowd. Whenever we are afraid, we look, in the, we look for the face of someone who fully knows us and unconditionally loves us. And David says that wherever we go, whatever we do, God is our loving face in the crowd. Whenever we trust in him, and are open with him, remember that's part of faith, that humility, whenever we trust in him and are open with him, he surrounds us with steadfast love and gives us confidence in every situation. Finally, in verse 11, we see that God gives us joy. God gives us joy. David ends where he began with indescribable joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Who are the righteous but those whose sins are forgiven? Who are the upright but those who humbly confess their faults to our gracious God? God's forgiveness makes us happy. But our happiness begins with honesty. It begins when we see the truth. About how sinful we are. In comparison with how holy God is. But my goodness, how freeing it is. To see the cross with clear eyes. To gaze on our savior. Crowned with thorns. Bearing our guilt and our shame. And to exclaim with John the Baptist in unshakable joy. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My prayer is that you know that joy this morning. And that if you don't. You will make the good confession. That Christ is enough, that his blood is sufficient to cover all your sins, no matter how evil. And if you are trusting in Christ, I pray that you will believe him when he says, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to the throne of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ to find mercy and help in time of need. And oh, we are so needy. As Pastor Nick has said, we have sinned a thousand times over even since last Sunday. We are in need of your grace. We do not presume on your kindness. But we do believe your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will You stand as we sing.